Hello and welcome to the How Not to Screw Up Your Kids podcast. So, pour yourself a cuppa, find a comfy seat and enjoy the conversation. This is episode 108 and I am going to be talking to Natasha Devon. Now, Natasha Devon, MBE, is a writer, she's a presenter and she's an activist. And what's really kind of blew me away about the conversation that I had with her and why I think it's so important that you listen to this particular episode is because Natasha tours schools and universities and runs events talking to children specifically about their mental health, about body image, about gender equality. She's so well placed to be sharing with us what she's hearing from these teens and how we can then help manage and support them, particularly around the use of social media and social platforms and how that impacts. And her book, is just filled with super practical tools. It's designed specifically for teens, and we'll talk about that. But I also think it's a really crucial book for us to work through. I mean, I was very fortunate enough that Natasha gifted me a copy, and I learned so much just as a parent going through it for my own children, but also it gave me lots of huge insights that were really helpful for me. So I absolutely know that you are going to love this episode. And obviously, I'll give, we'll send you the links to Natasha Devon, her work, and also for you to be able to buy the book as well. Now, as ever, if you enjoy this episode, I would be so grateful if you could follow and review this podcast so that others can find us and we can spread the love. So until next time, here's Natasha. Welcome, welcome, all of you. You are in for a major major treat because I am excited to say that I have Natasha Devon going to be talking to us today um, and sharing so much about the work that she does, but specifically her new book, Clicks, How to Be Your Best Self Online. Natasha, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. We've got so much to cover. Can I just ask you, whenever I have a guest on, one of the first things that I work on the basis is we end up doing what we do for a reason. So can I ask you just to start off to say, what do you do? And how did you get to be doing what you do? So my job involves going into about three schools or colleges every week on average, sometimes in the UK and sometimes abroad throughout the world. And I work predominantly with 14 to 18-year-olds, so slightly older teenagers. But the idea behind the work that I do was to make the mental health conversation a little bit more universal. So I asked teenagers what they would like PSHE lessons on, those kind of in-betweeny mental health issues that you wouldn't necessarily go to the doctor for, but can have a real profound impact on you, like body image insecurity and exam stress. And then I work with experts to create lesson plans and presentations based on the feedback that they give me. And um, the reason that I do it is because I I have a diagnosis of panic disorder. And um, looking back, I I had my first panic attack when I was 10, but that was a really long time ago. And nobody really spoke about mental health back then or acknowledged it. And I was misdiagnosed with asthma and allergies and, and all kinds of things. And I didn't receive an official diagnosis until I was in my 30s. So there were 20 years of my life where I just didn't know that there was a name for what was happening to me. And I feel like my mental health education was very much based in the extremes. And therefore, when mental illness happened to me, it sort of crept up on me and I didn't even recognize it in myself. So I wanted to give 
what is hopefully a more kind of relevant and, and engaging mental health education to young people than the one I had. God, that is incredible. And and what happened then in that trans, you know, when you reflect back to that 10 year old girl that was having all of these experiences and was being told it was something completely different to what it was. When you reflect back on that, how, how do you, you know, how did you feel back then? Can you remember? Yeah, I, the, the main way that uh, panic attacks manifest for me is in difficulty breathing, which is why I was misdiagnosed with asthma. But I remember I was a really angry 10 year old and I was angry throughout most of my teens. And it was because um, my brother was born four months premature. And then six months later, my cousin, who was a year younger than me, she was nine, died of cancer. And those two things were both really unfair. And I have always had a kind of overdeveloped sense of fairness. That's why I'm a campaigner now. So I was very angry, but I also, because I'm the oldest child, kind of felt like it's not okay to play up. You have to be helpful. You have to not make a scene. So I think what it was, was actually just swallowing so much of the frustration and the anger that I was feeling at that time. And it came out through panic attacks. Yeah, because I mean, your body keeps score and it has to come out at some point. It's an energy, isn't it? Emotions. Yeah. And that's such a, you know, whilst in your particular case, there was, you know, there was a very severe impact with that. But I do think that so many parents are very ill-equipped and not because, not from anything, I'm saying this from a place of love, but they're very ill-equipped to help understand that in those sort of scenarios, you really have to help children work through those emotions rather than letting them create their own narratives. What was your experience in terms of the conversations that were encouraged for you to have around what had happened and how adults worked through that with you? Well, I mean, my my brothers, there's only 10 months between them because the youngest one was so premature. He was born at 25 weeks. So you have to imagine right. my mum's got one baby who's really early and really poorly and a 10-month-old at the time when my cousin died. So she's just trying to survive <laughs> at that point. So I can't remember having many conversations. Obviously, we did talk about it, but perhaps not as thoroughly as we might have done in um, other circumstances. And I very much kind of took on a, a second mum type role with my brothers uh, as well. So I felt this kind of desire to protect them from what was going on and, and make everything lovely for them. And that was part of, I think, of plastering a smile on. And, and you know, sometimes when I say to young children, what does good mental health look like? How would you know if you had good mental health or someone else did? They, they often say, oh, you'd be happy all the time. And one of the things that I talk to them about is actually the mark of good mental health is to be able to feel a feeling and learn from it and process it. And you won't be happy all the time because life doesn't make you happy all the time. And in fact, if you were, you you would probably be masking something. Yeah, that's such an interesting thing. Where do you think, because I, I think that's quite an interesting concept, this idea that, you know, we've almost got this at one end, you've got a mental health challenge and at the other end, you're happy. And we don't talk about these sort of shades of grey in between. Where do you think this definition or this interpretation or that that young people have about what what good mental health looks like is being happy where do, where do they get that from 
I think somewhere along the line, we confused mental illness with difficult emotions. And it it's tough because I'm certainly not of the school of thought that says, you know, oh, we, we were all stressed when the, our exam time came and just suck it up and you're a snowflake. Like, I've, you know, I don't hold with that whatsoever. But I, I prefer the way I describe it is you've got your sort of mental health issues or issues that can impact your mental health. And then you've got your diagnosable mental illnesses and they're two separate things. And not everybody finds it helpful to see it in, in those ways. But I think it's with those in-between issues, which is very much where my work is based, it's as unhelpful to pathologize them as it is to dismiss them entirely. They, they require this really quite bespoke approach, I think. Yeah, and I love that phrase that you've got about that kind of in-between space, because so many teens are caught in that in-between space. They don't, they're not, well, maybe they're tempted into that pathologizing, but they know they're not, their, their kind of mental health isn't where it ought to be, but it's not so bad that it's, that it's this sort of pathologized. Yeah. And especially with the, the thresholds for getting a diagnosis are rising and rising because the NHS are so stretched. So the, the number of people who are almost kind of languishing in that in-between space is, is increasing. Yeah. And we don't want them just sitting, languishing in that kind of in-between space and having no, no support whatsoever. Natasha, when you talk about the issues that can affect mental health, what in your view are the top things that do affect the, this sort of age group's mental health? Well, it's really interesting because um, I can tell you what they say and then I can tell you what I think. <laughs> so right. uh, yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> when I ask them what I, I often phrase it, what's in your stress bucket? Um, they always start with academic stuff. So they say exam stress, um, homework, issues with time management, not feeling like they have enough hours in the day to do everything. Then they might say, um, you know, other people, friendship issues, um, maybe siblings, people at home. Um, and sometimes they will talk about the pressure to be perfect and not just to be perfect, but to demonstrate your perfection constantly to show that you are being perfect constantly. And then when they've given me that list, it's often me who says, and with this whole thing of not having enough hours in the day, uh, feeling this pressure to be perfect, misunderstandings with your peers, do you think that social media might be playing a role in that? And they go, oh yeah, because <laughs> it doesn't occur to them straight off the bat because they were born into this world. They don't know um, any different. So I, would pro I wouldn't put social media at the top of the list by any means, but I would definitely put it on the list and um, they don't. I also see a lot of young people struggling with identity. Um, so things to do with race, religion, class, sexuality, gender. And that's really closely correlated with mental well-being as well kind of having a sense of identity knowing who you are having a sense of, of belonging and community that's not something they articulate but it's just something that I observe in them yeah and, it, and I think that you know when we cast our minds back to those sort of slightly teen eight those angst-ridden teen years and probably I'd say even my 20s and 30s where you you don't really haven't quite worked out who you are what your values are what your interests are how you identify what your all of those things do you think that social media plays into that or do you think it's just we've got 
a generation that are just exposed to more things so they raise more questions do you know i look at some of the content that young people are making now asking really quite philosophical existential questions there are yes it's a tiktok video and it's 90 seconds but some of the stuff they're playing with you know intersectionalism feminism socialism and they're doing it with such wit and humor and I actually think it can be quite helpful in cutting through some of the confusion. I saw a TikTok video the other day and I thought that is genius. It was a teenage girl. She was pretending to be her mum. So she dressed as her her mum. And she and she was like I can't remember what this girl's name was, but let's say it was Annabelle, right? So she went, um, Annabelle, I don't know what you mean when you say that you have anxiety. No one my age has anxiety. I don't have anxiety. Your father doesn't have anxiety. I'm not sure I believe anxiety exists. And then it cuts to her being like, um, oh, my God, your sister's 10 minutes home, at late home. She's dead in a ditch. And if you don't pass all of your exams, you you won't become a doctor and you'll die in a ditch. And like, just having massive anxiety about everything, but just not terming it that that's so interesting yeah. isn't it so so really these things existed because i think this is one of the questions that i get asked a lot by parents and 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 people who'll be listening parents who'll be listening will be kind of thinking you know is this a new thing because a lot of people sort of talk about mental health being a case of oh we're just pandering to children we used to just have to just crack on but i think is your view then natasha that actually these things have always been there we just haven't discussed them we haven't labeled them we haven't given the framework around that it was just something that we just shoved under the carpet and never discussed it's definitely always been there you know it, when people talk about the the second world war and how uh, you know no soldiers struggled with their mental health apparently uh, because it was a more resilient generation then they don't look at the levels of alcoholism and domestic abuse and things which are uh, you know clear signifiers that there was a lot of trauma within that generation i always think of my nan um she she passed away last year but she she had this thing where she would say um how's such and such one of my friends you know she like my best friend's called sheru so she'd say how's sheru and i'd say she's great thanks nan thanks for asking and then she'd say how is she in herself and and that means how's her mental health? That's what that means. But it's just how that generation phrased it, you know. So it's just the nomenclature has changed, I think. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important point because otherwise, what we do is we de- we diminish the experience that that the sort of the, this middle group our teens and our children are experiencing. Because and then you get this mismatch and this this like loggerhead between parents and their children. Because it's almost as if one's talking one language and the other one's talking a completely different one. Yeah, totally, totally right. And that's why I always advise parents, if your child does make a disclosure to you, if they say, I'm feeling this way, I think the number one rule of any conversation about mental health is not to assume that the way you understand the word is the same way the person speaking means the word. And start off with that assumption so ask loads of open questions so that you can really understand what exactly is this person grappling with and what's the best way that I can help them yeah that's so such an important thing I was listening to a talk yesterday um and they were talking about how teens can misread when they're going through that particular age and specifically the the age groups that you're working with Natasha particularly in schools 
is that they they really struggle to um, read certain types of emotions. Not that they're emotionally inept, but they just don't always pick up on them. And so quite often, um, our concerned face can be misinterpreted as an angry face. So of course, we then get this sort of huge reaction from them because they've assumed we've meant something else and we haven't really then, we then launched with the whole, how dare you be so disrespectful? I would never have spoken to my parents like that. And then we're in this headbanging again. It's totally right. Sometimes I, I mean, I love teenagers. I love their brains. I find the way they think so exciting where they're, you know, they're old enough to understand how things work broadly, but they're young enough and optimistic enough and energetic enough, let's face it, to want things to change. And, you know, sometimes when they ask you, why, why do we do things like that? I, I'm genuinely like, I don't know, it's stupid. Thanks for asking the question. But um, <laughs> but sometimes the conversations I have when they say, oh, you know, my mum has said I'm not allowed to do this. And I'll say, why do you think that your mum has said you're not allowed? And they're like, to be annoying, just to be annoying. <laughs> and it hasn't occurred to them that there might be another motivation other than just to be annoying. I just love that. <laughs> Which brings me, so I want, I want to talk about your book, Natasha, because actually that specific, we're going to jump all over the place now, but just because you've mentioned that in particular. So the book to me, from the way that I've read it, has really come across as a handbook for, for children and teens in terms of how best to navigate their online presence. So it's not just sort of social media, but their online presence. And what I love particularly talking about this sort of mismatch and why parents do things is this, the section, the, ch- the chapter that you've got specifically on how can you have conversations with your parents to help them understand the world in which you inhabit? And that's, I don't think I've ever seen that before. I don't think anyone's talked about that before. It's always come from the space of, as a parent, this is what you need to do to help manage your children's lives online, but not come from that place of, I'm going to empower you to understand the space and then to empower you to be able to start conversations with your parents and know when is the best time to start the conversation. So can you talk me around that? Because I, I it's revolutionised. I think the way that teens then will feel empowered about this space. I am. Um, so many parents say to me, I don't know what my teenager is doing online. And, and by that, they don't mean I've just left them to it and I have no interest in it. They mean, I don't understand. I don't understand this game, this app. I don't know how it works. So it struck me that there's a real opportunity there for teaching up. And, and that's what the chapter is all about. It's getting your child to teach you how this app or this game that they love actually works, showing you the functions of it. And in doing that, you're learning about, you're getting a free technology lesson, essentially. But also that's a real quality bonding time because you're coming to them with genuine curiosity and saying this thing that you love, I want to understand why you love it so much. And you're building that trust so that say your child is approached by someone and they're not quite sure who they are and they're not comfortable with what they're being asked, there's more of a chance that they'll talk to you about it then. Yeah, and that's such a crucial thing. I mean, I know that parents are so fearful of their children being online and, and of part of that is social media, but part of it is still gaming and particularly um, where they're making, they're playing games online with people that they don't know. So it kind of creates this real stress. And I think the reality is that technology and device use is here to, you know, is, is part, is an integral part of the way that our children communicate. Um, 
And I'm a real advocate of parents trying to meet their children where they're at. Help me understand. How would you, and I know that in your book, you've talked about how the teens can then be empowered to do that. But what what are some of the kind of ground rules as parents when our teen approaches us with these things? And maybe they show us something that we think, oh, but what are the, do you think, do you have some specific ground rules that as parents we need to observe when they reach out to us in that way? I think for anything, and this goes for any kind of awkward conversation, the number one thing that teenagers say to me when I say, have you thought about talking to, you know, whoever's at home about this? They say, I can't, they'll freak out. And it seems to me that that's a real barrier that they don't want the, the drama of what that revelation might cause. So I would say if you possibly can, maybe save your freaking out for later when they're not in the room and just sort of try to be really calm and keep approaching it with curiosity. Okay, you know, why do you think that? Why? why? And, you know, you can introduce things so that it seems like it's their idea. So you can you can ask questions like what would happen if you tried this or, you know, why do you think this person might be saying this? What would happen if you did that? so that you're not kind of dictating to them. I also think, um, that I, I didn't make this up, this is based on some research done by ChildNet, that one of the big fears that teenagers have is having their technology taken away from them as punishment. So they often avoid talking to teachers and parents, even if they know that something's going on online that's not quite right. They think the net result of this is my phone or my tablet or whatever is going to be taken away. So try to um, be a bit more inventive with punishments, I would say, would be another ground rule. Yeah, I think there's, um, from what I see, there's a slight overuse of um, withdrawing technology as a consequence for a misdemeanor when actually it's not related to the misdemeanor. And I think part of that is if I think parents feel they don't have anything else that their child or teen values in the same way. So they think that that's, pu- you know, the, the most punitive that they can come out with. Um, but, you know, as you say, it's not, it, it just creates this closed kind of relationship with it. Do you think that from your kind of experience and, and, and the way that you're, this book that you've written, what sort of age should parents be buying this? Because my suspicion is it's probably a lot younger than parents might be thinking. So for parents to read it, I would recommend maybe tweens, 9, 10, 11, around about the time that their peers are going to be getting phones. Because even if they're not allowed a phone until they're 13, 14, your child is only as safe as the least safe child in their class when it comes to the online content that they see. So I, I would recommend it for kind of end of primary school age, even though the book itself is for 13 to 16 year olds. Yeah, I think so on that basis of the parent reading it first yeah. and getting that sort of, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think that's probably a really, really sensible thing to do. And we will provide links. Do not worry. We will provide links to <laughs> the book, um, which I think is, it, I just think is, is such an important thing because I think it, you know, it's this whole notion that I think knowledge is power. And a lot of the things that we, we're very fearful as parents 
is that we just don't understand it. And I think the pace at which it's moving, which is why I love your, when you get hold of your copies of these book, of the book, you'll find there's so many amazing visuals. But I was saying to Natasha before we started recording that there's, that there's a visual right near the beginning in terms of how long the internet has been around. And then this tiny little bit here. Um, but it, it, but it's evolving at such a pace. Um, I have two children, a 23 year old and a 19 year old. And I would say, and we've talked about it as a family, the pace at which it has changed from my eldest and there's three and a half years. He doesn't recognize a lot of the things that his sister has been exposed to at 19. What can we do to kind of keep up with this sort of thing? Well, I would say address your own relationship with technology first is that this generation of parents often they're quite social media addicted because we all lived through this huge revolution in the way that human beings live and communicate and understand the world and it, it's almost like a, a lot of parents haven't had a minute to just compute what it means before then trying to guide their, their children through um, exactly the same thing. So looking at your own relationship, I think, um, is a really good first step. And so many adults have written to me after reading clicks going, actually, I think I needed to know that. But um, the other thing is you can talk in really broad brushstrokes because even though the, the apps and the platforms that they're on change really rapidly and the trends change really rapidly, what's going on in terms of um, how the algorithm behaves, uh, always, you know, looking for validation that gives you a five second high and then, you know, you want more. The way that all the usual social cues are taken out of communication. So people are very often uh, having arguments when they don't need to. You know, these are very universal themes. And I am literally only on Instagram. I, I have a Twitter account because nominally I'm a journalist for one day a week. I have a show on LBC, but I hate Twitter. It's people shouting in a bin. Um, the only <laughs> social media app I have any interest in is Instagram. And most teenagers aren't on Instagram anymore. They've moved on. And yet I can still talk to them about broadly the themes of the things that I am seeing. And they get it because ultimately it's it's the same. Just the content is a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's an important thing. I always remember my son saying to me, um, the reason why we're not on Facebook is our parents are. Yeah. So we've come yeah. off and I suspect Instagram has been the next one. And then, and then, you know, when as parents are constantly on TikTok, it'll be the next thing. And then the next thing. My cousin wrote, uh, uh, back when I was on Facebook, I haven't been on for many, many years, but back when I was on it, my teenage cousin wrote a status on Facebook and his mum commented under it and wrote, go to bed. And that's why we're friends with our children on Facebook and, and, and all the rest of them. Although that they're, can I, I mean, I don't, you know, can you talk a little bit about this idea? I mean, I, not the friendships, but people they're interacting with online and the comments that are made. Um, so I do think it, it just requires us as parents to be constantly vigilant about what's my relationship with technology what am I modelling for my children? And also to really try and step into their shoes. Because I'm guessing the difference is that when we were younger, and I'm considerably older than you, we were just doing different stuff that we weren't telling our parents about. So it's not, it's not that they are, they've, that they're inventing this new kind of difficulty and, and deceit, because we were doing it, we were just a different kind of deceit. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, the key thing I think you said there is constant vigilance because 
I I hear a lot from parents and I completely understand the temptation to go in both of these directions. I hear parents say, I've taken a zero tolerance approach. They're not allowed any tech because it's dreadful and life was better before. And then I hear parents who, who are like, well, I, I, don't, I don't get it. So I've just allowed them to do whatever they want. And I talk in the book, of, I think, about how when it comes to addiction, there's two groups of people who are most at risk. It's the... Um, zero tolerance policy say it's alcohol it's the you're not even allowed a sip of alcohol ever or until your 18th birthday or it's unlocked liquor cabinet you know do what you like and actually the that in between space of boundaries regulation open conversation trying to understand each other is what brings about the healthiest mindset but it's not the easy option by, by any stretch no no, it's not. It's not at all. But I. Th- but I can completely see why those two extremes are what then sends them down that particular, that route. From your perspective, if we're going to not do the zero tolerance, which I don't think, I think that anything that is zero tolerance, you know, life is all about balance. When you think about anything, whether that's exercise, whether that's the way that we feed our bodies and the nutrients and things that we take, it's not about bit of abstinence or at the other end of just eating anything and everything. It's about moderate, you know, have a little bit of everything. That's what makes life more interesting. What are some of the things that you think that we should be doing as parents in terms of helping to support? Because I'm guessing you, yeah, let me ask that question and then I'm going to go back to the link with mental health. So what's really interesting is when you take gaming, for example, if if you ask a 14-year-old boy how much time do you think is a reasonable amount of time to spend gaming in the evening they normally say between half an hour and an hour and then when if you say to their parents asking the same question they usually say between half an hour and an hour so the discrepancy is not in the ideal amount of time the discrepancy is in the the ideal amount of time and how long is actually being spent playing that game so yeah in the book i talk about ways that teenagers can decide in advance how much time they want to spend and then create alerts so that they are regulating themselves. You can help them to do that. So setting alarms, putting them in different rooms, the questions to ask themselves at that point. And what I actually borrowed from some of the psychology of addiction to to do this, there's this um, quote in the book about the space between urge and action. And that if you can intervene in that space, then you're acting from a place of free will. And so I think what parents can and should be doing is helping their children to self-regulate because you're not always going to be there sticking your head around the bedroom door going, are you doing your homework or, you know. (laughs) No, and actually you're so right. Self-regulation is so important. I I often talk about this idea about our role as parents is to help our children that are basically a building under construction. So we should be always with considering the end in mind and the end in mind surely is adults that can learn to self-regulate if we're constantly intervening and doing the regulation for them then they're never going to learn how to yes what you said and part of (laughs) and part of that learning is that they're going to make mistakes they're going to get it wrong sometimes they're not going to be able to self-regulate yes and i could talk about this forever the psychology of 
making mistakes and failures. I do think social media has played a role in this because everything is documented and creates an indelible footprint. But I, I talk to young people so much about how you learn more from your failures than your successes. And all the most successful people got it wrong a gazillion times. And each time they were learning how to get it more right the next time. And if you fear failure, it doesn't mean that you succeed in everything. It means that you don't do things if you think you might fail. So you don't kind of fully embrace life. So I do think that we have to kind of see these failures as learning opportunities and go, okay, so how are we going to prevent that from happening next time? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a big part. And I love that in your book, you've talked specifically about how uh, children and teens can curate their their feeds and and in and their role models because I think that's a that's a huge part. Yes, of course, on social platforms there are some feeds that are very very carefully curated and don't give us a true reflection of the failures and the ups and downs. But there are others that do, and that's why I think that's for me a really particularly important chapter to be kind of within that because our role models dictate a lot of the choices that, that we then make and the assumptions we make about how we should live, what we should be doing, what our values should be. Yeah. And there is a lot of um, evidence to show that if you are surrounded by a diverse range of body shapes, it improves your body image. And I don't see why that shouldn't be also true for thought and attitude and mood. You know, if you are surrounded by people who are reinforcing inspiring, positive, nourishing messages, over time, that's going to impact your self-esteem, I believe. Yeah. Well, I, we, I can't remember the exact saying is that you're the product of the 10 people, however many people you hang around with. Now, obviously, on when we're following people on social media, we're not necessarily getting that smaller number, but it must, obviously, must impact us in terms of sort of thoughts and how we view ourselves. Yeah. And, and also the algorithms learn according to what we interact with. So if you, you can game the algorithm by following certain accounts and it will learn that you are into that type of content. Yeah. And I love that you've included that as well, because that's such a crucial part. I think parents don't understand that the feed that they have as adults in their social um, their social feeds, as well as their children, are is curated based on their interaction with the posts. And so if you, and some of it, am I right, Natasha, in thinking that sometimes it can be as little as a 30 second engagement with a video, or is it even less than that? Yeah, so the, the algorithm is measuring not only what you click on and like, but also how long your eyes spend lingering on each post. So it knows what you're scrolling past quickly and it knows what you are lingering on and it will feed you that content. But it's also using cookies to share that across different sites as well, which is why it made me laugh when there was an MP who said um, it's disgraceful that when you go into your emails, there's advertisements for pornography. And it's like, mm, that's a bit of a self own there. <laughs> it didn't arrive by accident. <laughs> Oh my God, but it is so true. So many people will say, you know, I've just been looking at and it suddenly appeared on my social feeds and things like that. So I think that, and again, that's really important for us to understand 
because our children might inadvertently, our teens might inadvertently click on something or engage with something that they've not asked to see more of, but has then been curated in their feed. And we should not be jumping to conclusions and making judgments that they've been clicking on all sorts of things. Well, and also that the algorithm will feed you the most extreme version sometimes of the thing you've shown interest in to try and grab your attention. So it, it, there's, um, it happens quite fast that if you look up content on vegetarianism, it will push you towards veganism. If you start looking how do I jog it will push you towards ultra marathons you know it's and it's trying to retain your attention by going look at all these shocking things in the world but what could happen then is your 12 year old could have typed what is feminism into YouTube and then it's thrown up some Andrew Tate content but that doesn't mean that they went looking for it yeah and I think that's a really important thing for us that you know that's a really important message for parents to be able to take home along with all other things that we've been talking about but it is that what shows up in our children's feeds and our teens feeds are not necessarily a result of something that they've actively clicked on it is part of these algorithms which is why helping our teens understand how the algorithm works is really important for them so they can they can then understand why it's appearing and then they can make choices in terms of then feeding back that that's not content that they want to see more of um, and it's irrelevant or you know that they that they have issues with that Natasha can I take you back to when you were talking about what teens say when you're doing your workshops with them about what are the things that create poor mental health or that they find stressful and overwhelming and what you find how do you what is your view then on social media and the impact that it plays on the We're talking about the in-betweens, but also in terms of those then that are really struggling with their mental health. This is such a difficult question to answer. We know that people who are experiencing mild to moderate depression or anxiety are more likely to spend more time on social media. But we don't know which way around the chain of causation works. It's not necessarily that it's causing it. it. It could be that people are using social media as a distraction or a coping mechanism when they're going through um, a tough time. We do know that social media has a negative impact on body image, particularly in teenage girls, and that body image is very closely correlated with mental health. There's um, a statistic from the Mental Health Foundation that one in eight adults in the UK has experienced suicidal thoughts because of concerns about their body image. So that's not great. On the other hand, I sometimes think that what social media is doing is it's holding up a mirror to broader society. And we blame social media when, in fact, all it's doing is showing us things like perfectionism, things like hypercapitalism and the, how the curriculum has been changed so that you know children have been turned into data points and exam stress and you know all of that stuff is reflected on social media but it that doesn't mean that social media is causing it and i also think that there are many advantages to social media most of all i just think it's not going anywhere that's why i wrote the book because i was like look we can all go oh wasn't life wonderful before it and look back in a nostalgic way and go you know i had a nokia 3310 fine but it's not useful (laughs) to teenagers now (laughs) 
my son keeps talking about that was his first phone and how could his sister end up with a smartphone when he had the brick (laughs) (laughs) and that's we're talking about a 23 year old to a 19 year old no but I think I think that that's uh, I think that is a really important way that we we reframe it um, I have always been very vocal about my concerns about social media and the impact that it has on young people. Um, but the way that you have framed it in terms of it, it's just a tool that amplifies what's happening societally. And, and we see that in terms of the divisiveness and the way that it places people in certain camps and certain categories and certain groups. And you can't belong in that group because your view is this. So I, I do think that that's I think we need to be looking at it from a wider wider issue that in terms of in terms of mental health but it is very interesting what you were saying in terms of one in eight in terms of body image and then the impact on mental health from what you've seen in schools um um and in the way that you've written the book do you think that this is more of an issue for girls than it is for boys or is it just a case that boys mask it more so i think it it manifests differently in girls and boys. And this is a generalisation. Obviously, it's not universally applicable. But mostly, if you say to a teenage girl, we're constantly being manipulated. They keep inventing new parts of our body for us to apologise for. And that's because the beauty, fashion and fitness industry are trying to make money out of amplifying our perceived flaws and we can never be allowed to be happy with ourselves. They go, yeah, that's pretty much how the world works. You say that to a teenage boy and they'll say, what's wrong with wanting to be healthy? And very often they start talking about evolutionary biology. They say, you know, men went out and killed bison and we have to be strong and muscular and women stayed at home. It's a real reductive understanding of evolutionary biology, number one. And number two, we don't live in cavemen times anymore. Like, you know, you don't have to do that. But it's what I've been working really hard with teenagers is unpicking because somewhere along the line, health and beauty got intertwined. And there's all these really unhelpful messages about the relationship between weight and health, for example, and what health looks like. And that comes you know, from health influencers quite, quite often who are pushing really not very scientifically robust information. So helping them to think critically about that. And ultimately, you know, the message... I say to them, the message of how to be healthy is so not sexy. It's like, you know, eat your veg, drink some water, get enough sleep, move around a bit. Don't overthink it. (laughs) (laughs) But that's so true, isn't it? It's so true. And I think what is quite interesting, isn't it, that you get different things. Do you think that as women and mothers that we spend a lot of time explaining the beauty and health thing with our girls and we take a different approach on boys or do you think it isn't just coming parentally but it's coming from every angle interesting question i think it's coming from everywhere i I don't think it's just parents although i do think that parents can subtly reinforce um i heard some a speaker once talking about how many girls grow up being told constantly how beautiful they are. Oh, you're so cute. You're, you're so lovely. You're so gorgeous. While simultaneously hearing their mothers or the adult women in their life complaining about their bodies. So what they learn is that a child's body is socially acceptable, but a woman's body is something to be feared. And, and this lecturer was arguing that that might be part of the reason that 
anorexia tends to have its onset in adolescence when you start to develop because it's trying not to in, inhabit a woman's body, which I, I thought was interesting. So I, I do think we should role model the behavior that we want to see um, and be positive about our, our own bodies in front of young people. Um, I think with, with boys, uh, I, so I've been talking to them about how, um, you know, what strength is, but not emotional strength, but, you know, fitness strength. Because some of the physically strongest people I have ever known have been professional dancers who don't look mm. super muscly. Because actually, if you can see a muscle, it's not really making you any stronger. That's aesthetically, you've worked on it to look a certain yeah. way, you know. Um, so I, I say to them that if you, if you genuinely want to get stronger, then your fitness priorities need to be different. If you just want to have a massive neck fine like i'm not here to tell you what to do with your body but you need to admit to yourself and others that you just want to have a massive neck for no reason <laughs> natasha i just think that's i love that <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna steal that but i promise i'll give you credit when i say it <laughs> oh natasha it's been so incredible i could talk to you for ages but just to finish off, can I just ask if you're going to give now, I, you know, we will include the link. My view is my personal view is I think we should be buying this as parents, regardless of our children's age and maybe buy two copies, one that you read, because I think actually we need to work through it because we need to understand and work through the exercises in terms of the relationship that we have with our clicks and then also a copy when it's appropriate for our children, because obviously, you know, and, and, and it's always the best time to be reading these things is before your child reaches that stage of development. So primary school parents, read a copy now. Um, but if you were going to give parents one piece of advice based on the conversations that you've had with teens around just navigate navigating what can feel very much like a huge minefield what what's the one i mean there's loads of things you could say but if you could only say one thing what would it be i think it's teach your children scientific literacy um everybody thinks they're an expert on everything these days and some people are so convincing and yet i say in the book when you interview a genuine expert as i have done many times on my radio show they are far more likely to say well, the evidence isn't entirely clear on that, or I don't know. Genuine experts say, I don't know, all the time. <laughs> so anybody who's saying to you, look, I've got a pie chart and it shows that the earth is flat, uh, you know, is is probably lying. Um, so, so teaching them about, you know, just checking sources and, and understanding that just because somebody has a graph or is wearing a white coat, they're not necessarily who they say they are, I think is super important. Oh, that's such, that's so helpful because critical thinking is a life skill. We're going to need it when we're, when our children are working and all the rest of it. Oh, Natasha, thank you so, so much. That has just been just a wonderful conversation as I expected it to be. <laughs> thank so thank you Thanks so much. Much. 